Welcome to episode 101, a 34-part episode on Catholicism 101, the foundations of our Catholic faith. These episodes originally premiered on YouTube. You can find the original video linked in the description to this episode, as well as a discussion guide for your benefit and whoever you might be listening with. A friendly reminder and invitation to please, if you have not yet done so, please rate and review this podcast. It helps other people find it. It's such a great way to get this podcast out there and for you to share it with others. But remember, the highest compliment you could pay this podcast and myself is to share this episode or any episode on social media. And you can do that by simply posting it on your story or tagging us in a post. At Mana Food for Thought is our Instagram handle. At Mana F4T is our Twitter and our Facebook page is just Mana Food for Thought. You can find all of that on our website, manafoodforthought.com, as well as all of our previous content. And if you'd like to become a financial sponsor for as little as $1 a month, you can do that by clicking on the Patreon tab on our website. If you have not yet done so, I really want to invite you to check out our friends at Thrive Coffee. It's Coffee with a Mission. Their website is drinkthrive.org, and they are a nonprofit craft coffee roaster in Richmond, Virginia. They use coffee to create careers and training opportunities for individuals with disabilities. Uh, they ship nationwide. Their beans are locally roasted in small batches. They make blends, and three bags sold pays for one hour of work for their differently abled employees. So go to drinkthrive.org, buy a few bags, and if you use promo code MANA, M-A-N-N-A, at checkout, you will get 15% off your first order. With that being said, enjoy the next installment in episode 101, a 34-part episode on Catholicism 101. Enjoy. In 2007, the Washington Post ran an experiment about the effect that context has on a person's perception. They sent a man to play violin on the Washington Metro at a station one morning during rush hour. And he played there for about 45 minutes. He played six pieces by Johann Sebastian Bach. And an estimated 1,100 people passed him by. And after those 45 minutes, only about 20 people paused to drop change, and less than 10 people actually stopped to listen to him play. And when he was done, nobody applauded. What people didn't realize was that that man was a Grammy Award-winning violinist named Joshua Bell. He'd been playing some of the most intricate pieces of music ever written, and he was playing them on a violin that was worth over three and a half million dollars. Only three days before that, he had played to a packed Boston Symphony Hall, where the cheapest tickets were a hundred dollars. All these people probably cheered him on and applauded in that symphony hall, but in the Washington Metro, it made no difference. You see, location and context matters. And there's a specific point in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is ministering in Galilee around the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel. And then all of a sudden, he takes him and his disciples in Matthew chapter 13, or 16, excuse me, and he travels 20 miles north of Galilee, out of Jewish territory, into the area of the Gentiles, and goes for the first and only time we have recorded in the scriptures to a town, a city called Caesarea Philippi. And he goes to Caesarea Philippi because the city of Caesarea Philippi is built on a giant cliff face into the rock. It's named for Caesar and Philip the Tetrarch, the two secular leaders or rulers of the area. And it is built into the precipice of this cliff face, which is 100 feet high and 500 feet wide. And at the top, there's a temple to Caesar 
And there are also uh, worship temples for the god Baal and the god Pan, both of whom are often depicted as or uh, associated with the devil. And in some of these temples, one of them in particular, there was an opening in the rock face where human sacrifices would be thrown down. And that gained the nickname the gates of hell or the gates of the netherworld. And so when Matthew writes that Jesus goes here and has this story where Jesus arrives and asks the apostles, who do they say that the Son of Man is? And they're saying, oh, some people say this, some people say that. He says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so Jesus blesses him in reply, and he says this, And so I say to you, you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He calls Simon formerly named Simon, now Peter, which means rock. And that name does not exist anywhere in history prior to this moment. It was a noun for a a rock. And he renames him that and he says, upon you, not upon this cliff, this rock city of satanic worship, of devil worship, of pagan worship, of worship of the secular rulers. No, I am coming to start a particular church. You will be in charge and The gates of the netherworld, the death, the sacrifice, all those things that happen here will not prevail against it. I give you keys, which implies authority, and that evil will never prevail against it. That is the specific context that is important to show that Jesus came to start a church. We know that our desires, as we've learned in these episodes, point to something outside of ourselves, and that is God, that he is real, wants to be in relationship with us. And that we can know him and have faith in him and know that he came as his son Jesus and really lived, really rose from the dead. But also that when he came, he intended to start a church so that we could be in continuous relationship with him and achieve salvation or the gift of salvation, accept it and receive it and be cleansed of the sins and the obstacles that prevent us from it for all eternity, at least until he comes again and the world ends. And so Jesus came to start a church, specifically with Peter at the head. And Peter was one of the most important apostles, if not the most, because he's always called away for these special moments with Jesus. So it's clear that he had something particular in mind for Peter. So after Pentecost, which we heard about last week when we talked about the Holy Spirit in the last episode, the church grew now that uh, the apostles had this power and guidance of the Holy Spirit. They began to meet in house churches. They lived underground when churches and Christians became persecuted. And their church took on specific characteristics. It says this in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that they devoted themselves to four things, to the teaching of the apostles, to the communal life, to the breaking of the bread, and to the prayers. Now, as Catholics, we have something called the four marks of the church. And if you've ever been to Mass, if you've ever prayed the Nicene Creed, we say at every Mass and every time we pray the Creed, I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Those are the four marks of the church. One holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And these four marks correspond to these four defining factors that we see described in the early church in Acts 2.42. So first of all, the church, the early church, was one, meaning it was devoted to the communal life, as Acts 2.42 says. That church was unifying. 
It says uh, a few verses later in Acts chapter 2, All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their property and possessions and divide them among all according to each one's need. And so there was a sense of unity here. There was no division. There was no sectarianism. We saw that a lot in Judaism with the Pharisees and Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots. But no, they were all together providing for the needs of one another. The Spirit unified them. Secondly, it was a holy church, meaning that they were devoted to the prayers, as it says in Acts 2.42, that this church was sanctifying. You may have heard it said before that the church is not a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. That is the purpose of going to church. It's not so we can be like, look how holy we are, but because we recognize we need a Savior and that we need the sacraments, we need the Mass to sustain us, to nourish us. And so sometimes people will get really frustrated that there's a lot of hypocrites in the church. And often my playful response is, well, what did you expect? Like, we're a bunch of sinners recognizing we need a Savior. If we all get together, we're going to mess up. Now, there have been a lot of unfortunate mistakes and sins that have happened in the hierarchy of the church, and those things are not okay, and sin is never okay. It doesn't mean it's allowed, but it doesn't mean that we should also expect that it's completely gone. Like, we are all imperfect. We will all mess up, but the church exists to sanctify us, to make us holy, and to help us on that road to heaven. So if one holy and Catholic is the third mark, this is the universality of the church. That's what the word Catholic, Catholicos, means, universal. And in Acts 2.4.2, it says they were devoted to the breaking of the bread, that this was a new covenant that was established for all people. It was no longer just the Jewish Passover, but Jesus changes that and transforms it into the new covenant of the Mass and creates a church that is evangelizing, that is going out and bringing everyone into the fold, that is no longer exclusive, but completely inclusive of all people. That we as Catholics have a desire for the entire world to know salvation in Jesus Christ. And so far, 1.3 billion baptized Catholics worldwide, not too shabby, but we still have a long way to go. And lastly, the church is apostolic. And that corresponds to Acts 2.42, where it says they were devoted to the teachings of the apostles. That our church is always proclaiming the truth that comes from that apostolic authority that Jesus gave, starting with Peter and then extended to all of the disciples and apostles uh, later in the Gospel of John. Jesus chose 12 specific men. He gave them specific authority to forgive sins, to baptize, to heal, to preach, and to minister. Those men became the first bishops, with Peter at the head, and his role became known as the Pope, the papacy. And we have an unbroken line of 266 popes from Peter to Francis. Every single bishop and every priest should be able to trace their ordination back to one of the original 12 apostles, that they were ordained by someone who was ordained by someone who was ordained by someone all the way back to one of the apostles. And that is where their authority comes from. That is where the power they have to confer the sacraments comes from. That is why they can stand in persona Christi, in the person of Christ, when they administer sacraments, because Christ gave that authority to the apostles and they gave that authority to those who came after them. Our church is called something that is infallible. Our church is infallible. That means it cannot make an error when it comes to official teaching. Now, this does not mean that the people in the church cannot make mistakes, because Lord knows I make mistakes all the time. The Pope makes mistakes. He goes to confession like once every week or two. And so if the Pope is going to confession, like, come on, uh, we all make mistakes. But the doctrines of the church, the teachings, those we believe are guided by the Holy Spirit, 
and they are rooted in that apostolic authority that has been given by Christ. So no one else can claim that for themselves. Jesus founded a specific church, and that church was the Catholic Church, the only church that bears these four marks to this day. Every other church, as wonderful as they are, and as um, some version of the truth that they contain, they can only trace their origins to a human founder or to a split from the Catholic Church. And those founders did not claim to be God. They were not God himself. They were not Jesus. Even go to Wikipedia and you look up the Catholic Church and it says founder, Jesus Christ, according to sacred tradition. Like that is who we are. Look at history. That is who founded our church. And we take Jesus at his word. And not only Jesus, but the entire Trinity was involved in the establishment of the Catholic Church. God the Father, from the beginning of time, he calls the church into existence by making these covenants with people. So first he created Adam and Eve, he made a covenant with them as a couple. He promised a redeemer when original sin fell into the world. And then he made a covenant with Noah and his family, a holy family, and he promised never again to destroy the earth. He chose Abraham in Genesis and made a covenant with him and his, what would become his tribe, and promised that they would become a great nation. And then when they had become a great nation but had become enslaved, he chose Moses and made a covenant with him and his nation, and he promised that he would give them the law, which he did at Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments. And then he chose King David and made a covenant with him to have a holy kingdom and promised that a temple would be built, and it was by David's son, King Solomon. And so all these signs and covenants of God specifically choosing and instituting a group of people for a purpose. And then when he comes as the son, Jesus, Jesus formally establishes that church. This is what it says in the Catechism, paragraph 766. The church is born primarily of Christ's total self-giving for our salvation, anticipated in the institution of the Eucharist and fulfilled on the cross. The origin and growth of the church are symbolized by the blood and water which flowed from the open side of the crucified Jesus. For it was from the side of Christ as he slept the sleep of death upon the cross that there came forth the wondrous sacrament of the whole church. Listen to this. As Eve was formed from the sleeping Adam's side, so the church, the bride of Christ, was born from the pierced heart of Christ hanging dead on the cross. And then the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, then filled the church with power and wisdom at Pentecost and continues to guide and sustain the church until the end of time. St. Irenaeus once said that where the church is, there also is God's Spirit. Where God's Spirit is, there is the church. Now the church is made up, yes, of a pope, bishops, some of whom are chosen to be cardinals who serve in special roles and elect the future popes. Each bishop is in charge of a diocese, which is kind of like a county. And each priest is in charge of a region or a city, kind of like a district, uh, and they operate out of a church that's in that area. There are also female and male religious orders that have special missions around the world to serve the poor, uh, run schools, missions, hospitals, orphanages, universities, monasteries, convents. And these people are sisters, nuns, brothers, monks, abbots, abbesses, all these different groups of people devoted to the Lord. There are also deacons. Deacons who serve specifically in preaching the word and service to the poor. And then there are the rest of us. We are called the lay people or the laity. And we are called to serve the church with our gifts and live out our faith wherever we are in the world. So it's important to recognize that the church, it does have this institutional hierarchy to keep going, to help minister to the world and to operate. But that is not the church. The church is us, the people. The church is everywhere. It says in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. 
That word church comes from the Hebrew word kahal and the Greek word ekklesia, which means a gathering of people or community, specifically for worship. Ekklesia has these root words that actually mean to call out, that we are a group of people who call out um, of ourselves a deeper meaning and who are called out of the normal life of the world to live for something greater. So it is a people. The church is not a building or a place. It's not four walls, but it is the body of Christ, all of us. All of our gifts and good works contribute to the church. So the question is, how are you contributing to the church? In your time, your talent, and your treasure. Those are the ways we are asked. Our time, meaning offering of our time in ministry and service. Our talent, seeing how we can glorify God and serve in specific ways as he's called us to. And our treasure, how are we operating, uh, helping the church operate financially by whatever we can offer. The mission of the church that we all carry is in Matthew 28, the very end of Matthew. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. So to become part of the church, you are baptized. Our baptism, we believe, is the key to our salvation. We become adopted sons and daughters of God and members of the family of God, which is the church. And so as in every family, we have responsibilities by virtue of being in the family. By virtue, virtue of our baptism, we have what's called the three offices of baptism. The priestly office, the prophetic office, and the royal office. In our priestly office, we're meant to cultivate the beauty of worship, share the beauty of a relationship with God with others. And so that comes in our evangelizing, but it also comes in the beautiful celebrations of Mass and the sacraments. As a prophetic people, we're called to preach the truth, to be formed in our faith and to form others in it. And as a royal people, we lead in the same kind of kingship that Jesus did, who led by serving others. And so as a royal people, we're called to work for the good of all, through acts of service, mission, and justice. You are the church. You have a mission, a purpose to share beauty, truth, and goodness with the world, to create belonging, and to share the love of Jesus Christ wherever you are. So how are you giving of your time? How are you giving of your talent? How are you giving of your treasure as an integral part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church instituted by Jesus Christ himself almost 2,000 years ago? How are you doing those things? And how can you start?